We're going to be focusing particularly today on Genesis chapter 24 and a selection of verses where the story is recounted to us of Abraham's oldest and most trusted servant journeying from what is today Israel to modern-day Iraq to find Rebekah, a wife-to-be for his son Isaac. I'm going to read that passage to you along with Pastor D's help in a few minutes after I do some setup for the sermon, but for now let's pray and then we'll launch in. Gracious and loving God, bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts that all would be pleasing in your presence, O God, you who are our rock, you who save us. Amen. We have a benevolent heavenly Father who is doing amazing things all around us every day. But if we don't have the kind of perspective to see it, we can miss it. I want to tell you a story of when I needed to make an intentional decision to shift my perspective to see the goodness of God around me as I went through a tough time recently. Well, I was on vacation, uh, not this past week, but the week before. And uh, you may recall that during, while I was away that week, there was a torrential downpour for three hours, right? And five inches of water came down, at least in the High Crest Road area where I live, in the course of those three hours. It turned out that when I returned home from vacation, that there were 70 gallons of water in my basement waiting for me. And thankfully, in a way, the carpet had absorbed all of this as a giant sponge. Unthankfully, the pad underneath was creating a rancid smell all throughout the house. Let me tell you, I was so excited when I opened the door to my house and smelled that. So my parents, they were with me, they were dropping me off from Naperville and we said, we can't stay here. This is an unlivable situation until the carpet is removed and the basement is restored. Thankfully, there was no sewage. This was just uh, rainwater coming in through a crack in the foundation that's all being fixed. And, you know, long story short, everything is fine now and I'm back in the house. But we're focusing just on those few days when I couldn't live there. So I realized I got to call somebody. I got to call someone in the church. I'm a poor homeless pastor on the street. I need help. Where will I lay my head at night? So I very seriously, very reluctantly called, not because of them, but just, you know, all of a sudden out of the blue having to ask somebody to stay at their house multiple days. So I called Don and Susie Black, and and they graciously took me in. Uh, I've worked with Don for about 34 weeks when we taught Disciple Bible Study 1 together, and I know Susie real well through our parish nursing program. She's one of our excellent parish nurses. So I feel, really feel comfortable with them. And, and I know that so many others would have taken in their poor homeless pastor. Um, but, you know, I just, I felt comfortable with them and they were, I knew that uh, things would probably work out with them. And when I was there that evening, I, I, was, I was a little, well, more than a little irritated about the whole situation. You know, this was certainly not a tragedy, but this was like on the scale of irritation, this was pretty high up there for me, okay? And I realized as I was about to go to sleep, like I said, I got to make a shift in my thinking. I have to look for the good that is around me um, in this situation, not just dwell on the fact that I can't live in my house for a number of days here. And since that moment, I started to see God's goodness. I was more patient with my surroundings, and I started to see the ways that God was blessing me in that situation. Don and Susie and I, I think, uh, took our relationship uh, to just another level of knowing each other. We had some great conversations around their table and it generated some new ministry ideas we might be able to pursue later that never, we would have never had those conversations likely had those events not come together in that way. 
I got to get some really good rest. They had a beautiful room. And I said to them as I was leaving, I said, I felt like this was like an extension in some ways to my vacation. Even though I was here working and doing things, but I could go back and, you know, they had, we had beautiful meals and it was just, it was great. It was a wonderful time and really grateful. I got to say though, by the fourth morning, I was pretty sick of Don's jokes. So I was glad to come home and have some respite from that at least. But don't tell him that. <laughs> uh, but really, it, it took that intentional decision on my part to look for God around me. As we turn to our scripture passage now, and I invite Pastor D to come forward, keep in mind this perspective of where do you see God at work in the circumstances of the story. And our scripture begins with Abraham's servant. The, the servant is speaking. He's recounting this whole narrative to Rebecca's family. And just to give some context, all of this has already been like written about uh, a chapter earlier in Scripture, but now the servant, uh, like as it was unfolding, it was described in the Scriptures. And then, to create dramatic effect in the passage, the servant then it retells everything to the family. But it's easier for us to read this because it kind of sums, sums it up a little bit more succinct than reading how the events all unfolded in the Scripture. And Pastor D is going to help me just because it's a bit of a longer reading just to give some variety to our voices. So we begin then in chapter 24 with verse 34. So he, the servant, said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become wealthy. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female slaves, camels and donkeys, and Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and he has given him all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house, to my kindred, and get a wife for my son. I came today to the spring and said, O oh Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will only make successful the way I am going, I am standing here by the spring of water. Let the young woman who comes out to draw, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw your camel also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had even finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will also water your camels. So I drank, and she watered the camels. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nair's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to obtain the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you will deal loyally and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, so that I may turn either to the right hand or to the left. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will. So they sent away their sister Rebekah, 
and her nurse, along with Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of myriads. May your offspring gain possession of the gates of their foes. Then Rebekah and her maids rose up, mounted the camels, and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy and was settled in the Negev. Isaac went out in the evening to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw camels coming. And Rebekah looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she slipped quickly from the camel and said to the servant, Who is the man over there walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor Dings. Famous biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann writes in the biblical commentary interpretation how the most important teaching we can derive perhaps from this text is the way that the servant sees God as a central player in this narrative. Brueggemann points to the fact that if you took out key prayers that the servant uh, uses throughout this narrative, like when he asks for God's assistance in finding Rebecca in around verse 48, and then we find a few verses later on verse 60 when uh, he is giving thanks for how God has blessed him in finding Rebecca, as well as other words of blessing. If you take all that out, you could really uh, winnow down this story to be something that doesn't even have God as a part of it. Well, the, Abraham sent his servant to his father's house in modern-day Iraq. He looked. He found this pretty lady by the well that, had, that watered his camels. He liked her because she was kind. So he, went, he gave a dowry to her family. They went back, and he found a wife for Isaac. Now certainly, that's not how Scripture describes it, right? Instead, it chooses to see, through the servant's account, God at work in the seemingly mundane or the seemingly coincidental details of the text. Brueggemann goes on to explain that we live in a time where the world around us sees the world from a perspective where God is not generally a central player. John Wesley struggled with this in his time. He often debated people called the deists. And uh, they viewed God uh, as a, the, the metaphor they used was that God was a watchmaker who wound up the world, in essence, that God created the world, but then stood back and didn't do a thing after that. And Wesley rejected that and said, no, our God is a benevolent God who is at work in our everyday lives. Brueggemann submits to us a way of changing our perspective on this text. The first is for us to notice how the Abraham's servant expects God to move. We see this in the servant's prayer when he asks for God to make his way fruitful in finding Rebekah. We also see the servant's expectation that God will act when he's willing to follow the seemingly crazy instruction by his master Abraham. 
Think about this. This would have been a dangerous several months journey for this servant to go from Israel to Iraq in his time, only trusting that God has spoken through his master that if he does everything that he's supposed to, he's going to find the woman of Isaac's dreams only in the place of Iraq. Took a lot of faith and trust, not only in God, but also in Abraham for him to do it. He had to have an expectant, hopeful heart. And then we see that the servant reflects on where God moved. He expects and he reflects. He reflects, we see, when he's retelling this narrative to the family. He's constantly indicating where God was at work. And he also is worshiping. We see that, that if we were to go back to the first writing of this narrative before the servant retells it, when he decides to worship, he's there with Rebecca's family, and he falls down and worships God in their midst, giving testimony to the fact that God has led to these events coming together. But he only sees that in retrospect. Brueggemann elaborates that where we should put our emphasis in life is not so much on expecting, although that's important, but on reflecting. That's where we can really see God more clearly. There's a danger if we are way too specific in our expectations, right? If we kind of put God in a box. God, you will do this at this time, in this way, on my terms, or else. That's not really being expected. That's being then very demanding and trying to control God. Instead, we need to adopt more of a heart of expectation, a heart of hopefulness, but allow God to move how God decides to move. Maybe God's answer to our prayer is no, maybe not yet, maybe yes, but in this way that you never expected. Maybe it is yes in the way that you expected. We don't know, but we got to give God space and make sure that we don't fall into the other extreme of having no expectations at all, no hope in God. But then when we reflect like the servant does, we can adopt that as a regular kind of practice, like Jody alluded for us to in her class that taught her about looking for those three good things every day. That each day, maybe it's at a lunch break, maybe it's before you go to sleep, uh, taking a moment to say, where has God blessed me today? Where perhaps have I seen God at work in the seeming coincidences or mundane details of my life today? I love uh, this great book. I submit to you to read it. Maybe we'll do a study here at the church on it later. Uh, let me know if you're interested in that. It's called Option B, Facing Adversity, and there's a few other words in the title, um, by a woman named Cheryl Sandberg. And she is the uh, number two at Facebook who works directly with Mark Zuckerberg. Well, Cheryl, she faced a terrible tragedy in her life. Uh, she was on a boat, as the story goes, on a cruise, and her husband, uh, he went down to the gym to work out, and she remained on deck, uh, reading a book, doing a few other things. And uh, she didn't know it immediately, but while he was in the gym, her husband had some kind of heart complication that he wasn't aware of, fell over and died right there. Understandably, about an hour later, when she finds out, Cheryl is mortified. She's a middle-aged woman with a number of young children, and all of a sudden, in the flash of an instant, she's a single mother. Her love of her life is gone. As we might anticipate, she is struck with severe grief and depression for months as she is wrestling with how to go on without her beloved. 
And the book, that I'm not going to go into every detail, but the book is basically, in essence, about how she learns to adopt a more resilient, emotionally resilient perspective on life, to choose to find joy and goodness in every day, even when she just wants to crawl up in a ball and not leave her bed. One specific chapter stands out to me as pertinent to our scripture today. In chapter 7, she has some rich reflections on joy and how we can look more intentionally for joy in our lives. And I submit to you that just take joy, and as you're thinking about what she writes, put blessing there, and you have more of a theological perspective on what she's saying. Well, one idea she submits is that joy is a discipline. It, it is an intentional decision for us to look for joy, especially in the tough times. She explains that our brains are literally wired from, due to our ancestors trying to survive many dangers around them every day to focus more on the negatives in our environment. The problem is that we don't always have bears attacking us, right, or food shortages. Today, we have a, a wide variety of issues that we may face, many of which don't threaten our livelihood from moment to moment, but our brain still has the same structure where we can take something that maybe is serious or maybe isn't quite so serious, but it's blown out of proportion, just depends on the situation, and we can just obsess over it every moment. And then it can cause us to lose our perspective on the goodness that's happening around us. The next is, as Jody said earlier, that uh, something that Cheryl started to do, especially early on as she was trying to shift her thinking, was to write down three good things every day that she saw, even on the toughest of days. Maybe you're not a journaler. Maybe you'd prefer to think about those things or say them out loud or visit with your loved ones about them each day. But making that intentional choice, especially on the tough days, over time can really shift our thinking. I thought this was a particularly cool suggestion. And Emily Palm, who's with us, uh, she's in college now, as many of you know, and she just discussed this concept in her psychology class recently. Coincidence? I don't know. So it's called flow. And all of us, I guarantee you, have experienced this at some point in our lives. Maybe you just didn't know the word for it in psychological terms. Basically, it's when you engage in an activity that you love or especially something new, you visit a new place, and your mind is totally consumed in that task. It's the only thing you can focus on. So for me, that's like rowing when I'm on the river in the morning. It's amazing. Or when I golf um, or, uh, and not frustrated. Um, when, you know, when I'm playing music. These, these are times when I enter a flow state. Uh, maybe for you it's painting or maybe it's cooking if you like to cook. What have you? Reading an amazing book that really grabs you. You know that you, you, two hours go by before you realize it. That's flow. And if you've got that emotion now, as I'm describing it, that sensation, do you notice how after you go through that, well, when you're in the moment, it's kind of freeing. You're like, man, I just, I'm not even thinking about all the worries I have right now. And then even after you emerge from the flow state and go back to the mundane, then you're like, man, you know, that, that was so cool, and all of a sudden I don't feel so stressed out now. So Cheryl started to intentionally seek out flow state moments on her days off in particular, whenever she had time to do that. And it really made a difference for her in finding more joy in her life. She finally stresses that all of us deserve to have joy in our lives. I don't know where you are today, what struggles you have, 
Maybe you feel like there's no way that you can find anything joyful in your life. But bear in mind the words of the woman who is writing to us here. That she didn't just have her basement flood. This woman lost her husband. She all of a sudden in the blink of an eye is a single mother. And through a lot of people helping her, and I would say through the grace of God, she was able to find more resilience. She was able to, as she would put it, shift her thinking and look more for those big and small moments of joy in her everyday life. If you feel that way, that you don't deserve joy, you can't find joy, maybe you need to go through a bit of that paradigm shift. And I don't say that in any way to negate the pain or grief that you may be feeling right now. Returning to our text, I wonder, how can each of us be more expectant of God to move in ways to bless us and others? How can we be more intentional each day of reflecting on where we see those blessings? But let us be sure as we engage in those practices that we not hoard the blessings to ourselves insofar as when we notice a blessing that we then just keep it to ourselves and don't tell anyone else. A key reason God blesses us is so that we give testimony to it, that others see it, and they know that God is alive and well and at work in our world. Jesus touches on this point in Matthew chapter 5, verse 15, when he teaches us in a parable that we are not to place a light under a bushel, but instead to place it on a light stand. And when we have blessings happen to us, big or small, and we don't tell anyone, that's us putting it under a bushel. But when we put it on a light stand, all can see it. It sheds light on them, and they start to see the grace of God at work in their world. And we can do this in some simple ways. Honey, you're such a blessing to me. Thank you for being in my life. To your workmate, thank you for helping me on that project. You really were, were great. Or to our friend, I'm so glad that you're a part of just my world. You, you mean a lot to me. It's giving thanks for the pillow under our head each day, the food that we have, the clothing, the big and small stuff. God is always at work around us, showering us with goodness every day, but we can so easily miss it. And here's what's exciting. When we share the good news, that's what the gospel means is good news. When we share the good news of God's love on a repeated basis, especially at scale throughout our community and with people in Rockford, friends, they will see God's light shining in this city. It will help others discover that God is moving in powerful ways this day, even if they have not yet come to the faith. They will be able to see that light shining. Let us then, friends, with expectant and hopeful hearts, try to adapt that behavior. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.